0: Welcome to Our Six Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell
1: than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies? To local grassroots community organizing. How can we cure our sick society?
2: Welcome to this episode. My name is Dirtabema and I'm a lecturer at the Centre for Society and Mental Health. Today we talk about digital exclusion and how the demands of digital participation in nearly every area of life intersect with mental health and disability. Especially under COVID, the world has moved online, but only for those who can afford and know how to navigate the digital realm. This podcast explores digital exclusion from different angles. We ask how it is defined and currently addressed, what it feels and sounds like and how it plays out in practice in local and global communities, and importantly, what can be done about it. So this podcast has three parts that are rather different from each other. So we start off by talking to Kate Scodelaro, a graduate researcher and activist about how digital exclusion intersects with inequality and how it is addressed in the UK. Then we hear from people who have experienced obstacles to digital participation, and we share the highlights of a theatre workshop that produced fierce discussions, beautiful poetry, and powerful soundscapes that bring to life the emotions, the challenges of digital exclusion, but also their visions for change and for meaningful support. Lastly, we will hear from a group of academics, medical anthropologists, psychologists and computer scientists who contributed to a blog series called Tracking Digital Psy. Together with the editors of the series, Natasha Brandman, Beth Semmel and myself, they explore the forms of exclusion that emerge in the realm of digital mental health care. I want to thank all of our collaborators, and in particular, River Uyhotbor, a theater practitioner and researcher at the Center for Society and Mental Health, who directed our creative process and co produced this podcast. We're grateful for the support from the Center for Society and Mental Health, the Department for Global Health and Social Medicine, the ESRC, and the theater company Clean Break. So let's start with our first part, in which we talk to Kate Scudelaro about digital exclusion in the UK and how it relates to mental health and disability. Hi Kate, welcome to this podcast and thank you for joining us. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and the work you do?
3: Hi, I'm a postgraduate student at King's College London. I'm studying a Master's of Global Health and Social Justice. I've worked in the private sector for a long time but decided to return to uni um, as I have an interest in disability after volunteering within the disability sector for about ten years in Australia and the UK.
2: So how did you become interested in the concept and the lived experience of digital exclusion?
3: Before uh, the coronavirus pandemic, I was volunteering in Lambeth as a swimming mentor for people with disabilities. So before lockdown, we were going swimming together. And then when everything closed, we had to start interacting virtually. And so to interact virtually, we had to learn how to use Zoom together. And it was just so interesting to see that once we learned how to use Zoom, my mentees were able to then go and do all these things that they'd never been able to do before, like have face-to-face conversations with their relatives who lived overseas. They were able to join disability support groups without having to, you know, catch a tube across London, which could be really difficult for them. And it made me see how many doors, you know, technology opened up for them. And then at the same time, they were coming to me saying, oh, I'd really like to learn this, or can you teach me how to do this on my phone? Just seeing the impact that being able to use technology had on their lives, it just made me realise how important it was for them to be digitally included. I also feel like it's not something that people talk about a lot. People use technology so much in their day-to-day lives that they forget that other people don't use technology and therefore they can't see how limited other people are when they're not able to use a mobile phone or use WhatsApp or use Zoom.
2: Would you mind explaining to us what the term digital exclusion means and how it is commonly used?
3: So in simple terms, digital exclusion is where people have unequal access to online information and services, as well as unequal opportunities to communicate online. The term exclusion suggests some kind of hard line between being excluded or included But in reality, someone's ability to successfully use technology really depends on a range of factors. For example, whether they have an internet connection, what device they might be using, the task they're trying to perform, how easy to use a website or a program is, and who they have around to support them. So it's very complex and varies from one situation to another. Many websites are also inaccessible to people with varying abilities. For example, those who have sight impairments or dyslexia. And finally, for many different reasons, people often lack the motivation to learn how to use new digital channels. So, for example, studies have shown that many seniors believe that browsing the internet is not safe and feel that using things like email and Zoom will be too challenging for them. There's a lot of ethical debate about whose responsibility it is to motivate people. Are people responsible for motivating themselves to use technology if they have the skills and resources to use it but i would argue that when someone has been oppressed their whole life and they've been told that they're not able to have the same opportunities as other people they become very demotivated in terms of trying to learn new skills and trying to get access to things that they never have access to before. And I think the responsibility is really on the, the people and organizations and governments that have created that disadvantage in the first place, which is often structural, to then overcome that and help people sort of find the agency to, to learn the skills and to adopt new technology.
2: And who do you think is most affected by digital exclusion and why? Why?
3: As you would expect, digital exclusion is more common in low- and middle-income countries where fewer people have access to digital resources, as well as fewer learning opportunities through school and work. But even within high-income countries like the UK, we have about 7% of the population who are completely offline, and 16% of people don't have what the government considers to be basic digital skills, like being able to connect to a device to Wi-Fi. The UK Office of National Statistics also reports that the main factors increasing someone's likelihood to be digitally excluded are being older, living in a rural area, having a low socioeconomic status, and also having a disability. So by looking into how digital exclusion affects these people, we start to see a strong link between digital exclusion social exclusion and someone's health and well-being. Firstly you find that people who are digitally excluded have fewer opportunities to access social resources online which are a lot of the time only available online. So for example during COVID when everyone was locked down universal credit only became available through online application That's changed now, but all of a sudden all these people who couldn't use computers and the internet were unable to get universal credit. Having employment opportunities and housing opportunities and accessing other social resources online just becomes impossible for people who can't use computers or they just have fewer opportunities, which obviously creates more social inequality. It also means that they have limited access to healthcare. So for example, if you can't use a computer, you won't be able to book an online consult with your GP, which is obviously a big problem for people who are social distancing and shielding during COVID. You can't access mental health services that are provided online. You also can't get access to information quickly so for example if you hear that there's been changes to the lockdown rules or there's some information that you need about vaccines and you can't go on your computer and look it up you might have to watch tv all day until that information appears so therefore you lose time or you might have to go out and go somewhere to find that information so there's all these psychosocial stresses that are related to all those restrictions that are placed on you finally all these sort of limitations and restrictions that are caused by digital exclusion are concentrated in communities where people are already suffering from other disadvantages like you know people who uh, have a disability or people who are older or people who um, live in regional areas for example so it sort of has this compounding effect where people disadvantage just creates further disadvantage
2: And what impact did the pandemic have on digital exclusion in the UK?
3: The pandemic's really exposed how difficult life can be for people who are digitally excluded. Before, when you could go to the bank and get your money out, you know, you were able to perform everyday tasks like accessing your finances. But with COVID, that completely changed and People who were digitally excluded just became completely excluded from society and weren't able to do basic things. So for example, I was speaking to a friend the other day who, up until a month ago, used to access her money from going to the teller at her local bank, but recently the branch has shut down and because she can't use online banking, her only option was to go and try and use her local ATM uh, for the first time, which is of course a digital device in itself. And unsurprisingly, during her first time using the ATM, she needed assistance. So she had to ask for help from a stranger in line with her, which obviously put her in a very vulnerable position.
2: And what is being done to support people to stay connected during COVID?
3: So during lockdown, there's been many successful efforts to address digital exclusion amongst disadvantaged groups. For example, there's been drives to deliver internet and devices to people and families in urgent need. And there is new government funding for things like digital skills boot camps. But it's also important to realize that not all interventions have had their intended effect. And in some cases, they've actually widened inequalities rather than bridged the digital divide. For example, at the beginning of the pandemic, Major telco companies removed data caps on broadband plans, so people weren't charged for using extra data during lockdown. However, broadband is typically used by higher income groups, whereas people in deprived communities tend to be pay-as-you-go customers, and they weren't offered any of those discounts or subsidies.
2: Are there programs and interventions that you would consider well done and effective? And if so, could you tell us a bit about them?
3: So there's been some local initiatives where organizations who specialize in providing people with programs to learn how to use technology, rather than sort of delivering them themselves, they've actually upskills members of their local community to kind of deliver that on their behalf. So you're sort of enabling communities to help each other as opposed to having to rely on one organization to access workshops or boot camps or whatever it might be.
2: Thank you so much, Kate. So as we're drawing to a close of this section of the podcast, what is the most important takeaway message you would like to pass on? And how can all of us, and especially those in power, make a difference?
3: I think it's important to stop making assumptions about people's abilities, not only as individuals, but as companies as organizations as governments just because we are digital natives doesn't mean that everyone is a digital native and in fact there are a lot of people in the UK who aren't online who can't use digital devices and by making those assumptions we essentially are excluding them from society so make sure that whatever you're designing as a service provider is accessible to everyone, and not only accessible to everyone, but accessible to the people who need your service the most. I think there's a clear opportunity for all organisations, whether they're government, public, private or non-profit, that before transitioning to new digital channels, it's really crucial to understand how suitable they are for different groups of people, especially those groups who have the greatest need for whatever service organisation is providing. An important part of this understanding also goes beyond statistics. It's only after listening to people's lived experiences that you can make sense of all the intricate enablers and barriers that are commonly overlooked. Only when those intricate factors are taken into account can we be confident that interventions will actually reduce the digital divide as opposed to making it wider.
2: Thank you, Kate, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. In the second part of the podcast, we explore the lived experience of digital exclusion by sharing the highlights of an online theater workshop with people who've experienced obstacles in digital participation. Together, we creatively explore the intricate barriers, as Kate has called it, and the relationship between our digital and mental lives. So, the workshop was itself an experiment, and also a vivid example of the mechanisms of digital exclusion. It was both full of joy and expression, as you will hear, but also marked by the very digital challenges we discussed. Technology broke down, computers malfunctioned, headsets crackled, And all of this resulted in important voices literally missing from this recording. So while we reflected on digital exclusion, we were also perpetuating it. And we mentioned this to apologize for the occasional uneven sound, but also because we realize that an online workshop and podcast still leave out too many we would have liked to reach and hear from.
1: In this part of the podcast, we share the highlights of a theatre workshop that explored digital life worlds and all the highs and lows that come with technology. A group of artists collaborating on this project were Oriana, D, Chill Jill, Amala Joy, Katie Timosh, and Rupert. We discussed our life experiences with the digital world and online technology and used drama tools like music movement, and image theatre to produce prose, poetry, and spoken word.
4: We released what was already embedded in us through words and soundscapes. The workshop created a reassuring space that allowed for real openness and for us to spark off each other. Everything was possible because it felt flexible enough to allow things not to go to plan and that to be okay.
5: The online sessions were led by the process of mutual learning, trust building, and the discovery of ease, release, and joy within this difficult topic. In the following, you will hear lively discussions and artistic responses inspired by theatrical games and exercises. Let's hear from Oriana first. This is a spoken word poem written and performed by
6: Oriana. It's about the journey of digital participation and our well-being. It's called, and if I speak of digital participation, and the piece was inspired by Roger Robertson. And if I speak of digital participation, then I'm speaking about technology. And if I speak of technology, I'm speaking about isolation. And If I speak of isolation, I'm speaking about disconnect. And if I speak of disconnection, I'm speaking about accessibility. Who has access? Can we all have access? We all have a right to access. And if I speak of the ability to access, I'm speaking about devices, hardware, software, digital overload. And if I speak of devices, hardware, software, digital overload, I'm speaking about personal information, adverts and data. And if I speak of personal information, adverts and data, I'm speaking about overloading my brain. And If I'm speaking of brain overload, I'm speaking about the burnout. And if I'm speaking of burning out, I'm speaking about muting. And if I'm speaking of being muted, I'm speaking about Zoom rooms. And if I'm speaking of Zoom rooms, I'm speaking about connectivity. And if I speak of connectivity, I'm speaking about sharing and pairing. And if I speak of sharing and pairing, I'm speaking about breaking down barriers. And if I'm speaking of breaking down the barriers, I'm speaking about local community. And if I speak of local community, I'm speaking about unity. And if I speak of unity, I'm speaking about rhythm. And if I speak of rhythm, I'm speaking about the body, the mind. And the soul. And if I'm speaking of our bodies, our minds and our souls, I'm speaking about healing. And if I speak of healing, I'm speaking about staying safe and well. If I speak of staying safe and well, I'm speaking about being kind to others. And if I'm speaking about being kind to others, then I'm speaking about being kind to yourselves. The process of well-being and the digital participation is repetition, repetition, repetition.
5: Our artistic responses prompted many discussions recounting our frustrations with the digital world, getting lost, feeling exposed, or thinking about how the increased use of online technology might be chipping away our privacy and impacting our mental health. But equally, we talked about the joys of being connected via digital platforms, the agency and control we can carve out in these spaces, and the pact we make with our devices.
4: I'm forever swearing at my computer, but I I also acknowledge that it's like a necessary evil. Everybody I know or is close to says computer completely changes my personality. And it does because I am a very quiet, calm, laid back person with lots of patience. But that all goes out the window as soon as I'm in front of a computer like the the frustration of it, I get really frustrated and it's like in the piece I wrote, there must be logic, there must be logic. That's that's, every time I'm like on a computer, I'm scared to touch the keyboard in case I lose something, but then I'm like, no, there must be some logic to it. Come on, you will find the answer. Just keep going. And I try and follow um, YouTube clips, but I just get so lost in the vocabulary of it all I find the technology for computers is um,
6: you've got to be in the know-how. I absorb so much information. I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder as well so for me um, I can really resonate with what Chill Jill was saying about having a connect and having some form of structure actually but also the same thing even if I'm in a room full of people uh, be it online or in real, real life. I I also have to be aware of my own health and well-being. And by absorbing people's emotions or energies, I get really burnt out. So, yeah, I have to be conscious of that and I have to keep breathing. And it has to be a conscious decision to continue to, to stay connected. I signed up to three things the other day. three zo- And it was three Zooms in one day. And each were like over two hours. Had that be physically, there's no way I would have attended those three meetings on those three days. I would have staggered them. But I just thought we could do this. And I did. I attended. But yeah, the next day I couldn't do anything. Absolutely burnt out. I was mentally, physically, spiritually, I suppose. I just sort of just needed to recoup.
4: When I've been very mentally unwell, I have not been able to go near a computer. I think it's something that Oriana said, because I get quite paranoid. My illness results in me getting paranoid and to stay well is not to get paranoid and sometimes using the computer it triggers me sets me off so even though I know to be connected is the best thing the thing that's connecting me makes me paranoid
6: it can do yeah and also as well I feel like in this space and not today particularly in this space per se but in a space where you're a virtual reality even though it's our reality and we're here you're there i'm here but actually it's afterwards i think oh have i overshared I, I second guess myself and it's that paranoia it creeps in and there's there's often you know if the phone rings i can't often answer the phone and if i don't know who it is i definitely won't answer the phone if they leave a message i can call them back it's just there's a fear that takes over my chest tightens i can't breathe i'm sweating and i get scared and who, who could it be
4: Once I had this psychotic
6: episode and
4: part of my care plan was do not go online. Now, if that had happened during the pandemic, which I I did get a bit, you know, zony and, and superstitious of the computer... But, you know, if you're being told the only way to keep well is to stay offline, don't watch the news, don't do not do anything. And then all your life is attached online. It's, it's like you're kind of buggered, aren't you? You know, the most vulnerable people in society are being completely left out of this new digital
7: age. You don't leave here and go somewhere else. You just switch press a button and you're still and I'm still in my room and they've disappeared and it's like what hap- what just happened there's also another phenomenon called disinhibition we might get um because I'm safe at home in my little space so I could say anything and it kind of removes a filter I can't
1: control outside of me I have to decide what it is that I'm going to do to maintain or grab back my my sanity. But then there's all the tech anxiety. And there's the, if I'm going into a group of people that I don't know, how is this going to work? Are we all going to be heard? Is everyone going to do as we've agreed to do? And my thing is, I want my privacy. I I have to have my privacy. And I need to feel secure, which is... I have to admit sometimes why things do take longer with me. This thing I was speaking about being able to be off camera and still be involved and being accepted with that, I think that's major and I don't think that's just for me. I think that that can be major and therefore build confidence in lots of people who have sat in meetings not knowing where to put their faces thinking, oh, I'm sweating too much, oh, I need to go to the toilet, or whatever, 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 to be able to be off camera and control all of that or sit with it, I think that's like a great big gift if I can utilise it and be allowed to u- utilise it as well.
6: So, well, yeah, i just, um just picking up on that because I think, I think what part of Amala is is sort of saying there it's about freedom, isn't it? It's freedom of choice, freedom for us to be able to choose how we are, how we represent ourselves, how we want to be represented. And it just resonates because we should be able to have the freedom to do what we want that makes us feel okay, that makes us feel safe, be ourselves to connect through the technology with other people. It's OK for us to be in control of our own environment and to be able to manage our own environment. When it starts to impact on your own well-being and your own safety, it's OK to say no. And it's OK. It's OK to say no. And it's OK to say, you know, enough. I'm going to take myself away or I'm exhausted. I'm going to switch my camera off. I don't I don't feel like I want to be in that space now. I've been in 20 Zooms. We can't control the world around us, can we, all the time? But we can You know, try to manage our response
7: to that. I've
6: got
7: another siren going past. This is Kim, Katie Marsh. That's my piece. I kept my phone on silent, so I couldn't hear it when you didn't call me. That phone is a bastard tyrant. It's the source of all my happiness and misery. But I refuse to be your victim, phone. I've got strength. You don't have any idea how strong. You keep me hooked and on the line, but I won't hang here dangling. I know that we both have our problems, and we are far from love's young dream, but honey, you light up my screen. Our connection is precious, and it's a two-way street, so speak up, call back, because incommunicado isn't somewhere I would choose to live.
5: Next up, you will hear two soundscapes that was created by a drama methodology was a the Theater of the Oppressed. It was developed by Brazilian theater practitioner Augusto Boa. In this exercise, each artist chooses a unique movement and a sound to create what is called the human machine. The machine comes to life when the sounds are layered onto each other to form a rhythmic chorus. In this way, we bring to life what unhelpful support in digital participation sounds and feels like, followed by a machine that explores its opposite. The experience of helpful support in navigating the digital world. After the soundscapes, you will hear an artistic response by Amala Joy, and a short discussion on the machines. Enjoy.
1: That is not helpful. 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 Just play. That is not helpful. Just play. That is not
6: helpful. Just switch on. That is not helpful. That is not helpful.
1: Just switch on. That is not helpful. Just play. Turn up the brightness. Switch not helpful. Just play. That is not helpful. Turn up the brightness. That is not
6: helpful. Turn
1: up the brightness. Turn up the brightness. Turn up the brightness. Turn up the
6: brightness. Really?
8: It oh, really? really? is not Whoa. helpful. That is not helpful. That is
7: not helpful. That is not helpful. That's not helpful. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense.
9: Eureka.
2: That makes so click. much sense. Oh, it's okay. Take your time. Plug and play. It's okay. Take your time. Plug and play. You just make
6: sense. Take your time. It makes so much sense. It's okay. Take your time.
3: So much sense. Log in, play. Okay. So take so your, time. Plug and play. So
5: so your
4: time. Log play. Okay. Take It's okay. Take that your time.
6: So Okay. That makes your so time. much sense It's okay, take your time It's okay, take your
3: time My hands were on my hips While saying That is not helpful
1: And I felt the repetition build up My expiration Yet heard the beginning of a song A rhyme Rhymes are brought to life for pleasuring Aren't they? My energy transforming from scorn to humour-filled took the weighty pressure off me. The pressures realised in my initial tone and stance were supported, held, brought into new life in the machine. But that is not helpful. I know that one well, and I haven't always had the courage to say it. I can sit there thinking it and walk away thinking it thinking right yeah i'm never going back to that or yeah i'm cutting my losses in this meeting and i'm gonna go and do something that means something to me (laughs) it's so interesting because for me machines just mean machination pain will it work won't it work that was the complete opposite
4: yeah it had a movement to itself didn't it? it had its own movement
6: yeah, it functioned. It We functioned. We functioned. It was a functioning machine. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful.
1: Thank you, ladies.
5: The COVID-19 pandemic has transformed our relationship to online technology. In the following, we share our experiences of barriers in accessing online resources and platforms. Then we explore how that relates to inequality and injustice. Finally, we pose the question, who is responsible for ensuring the possibility of digital participation in our society?
4: Actually, during lockdown, as I said, we've had to come to a truce. Me and the computer have had to have a truce with each other, and I'm glad we have because it's the computer that got me through lockdown classes parties are you know
1: so this covid thing i could see the need to get online coming and i just thought you know i'm not going to even though i was getting texts saying come to this meeting come to this meeting if it hadn't been for clean break they didn't even insist actually <laughs> they just didn't leave me alone
3: <laughs> so
1: and i couldn't i couldn't say no because one minute I'm without a laptop and then somebody from Clean Break is saying, I'm in the car, I'm coming with a laptop, so just tell me where you live exactly and I'll I'll be parked outside. So that was that. Clean Break support women who have experienced the criminal justice system and that's in any way, in any way at all. So um, yeah, I've been with them for six years. They were just persistent actually, uh, which is obviously what I needed because I needed a laptop. If I was going to continue with life, then I needed the laptop.
6: Everything just went really quiet. I just felt really um, uncomfortable with that at first. And then being able to connect through Zoom and through phones, I just think technology enabled us to have that connection. I was already isolated for so long before COVID. There's some things that didn't change for that, um, other than everyone else joined my party, so to speak, everyone else got on board, I kind of got onto a level playing field, I felt like life and time was running out for me, I'd lost a lot of years through trauma and recovery, and being dissociated, I felt, and suddenly the whole world had to stop, so hold on, Right. So now you guys can understand those that live with physical, invisible illnesses that until they're physical and visible, people don't actually necessarily understand or respect or have compassion for. And as much as I've missed being social where I was able to be in terms of having to plan my whole meeting for safety or for toilets and for access, I kind of it worked in my favour, actually. I think The pandemic just
4: threw up more and more what an unequal society we are. Like, especially if you're a a single parent working on the breadline, trying to get by, and then all your kids are at home and you've got to homeschool them, might have been laid off from your job. I mean, there's that constant worry. And I think I heard yesterday, like, a quarter of Londoners live under the poverty line. And if you're under the poverty line, it is still quite a luxury to have internet and a computer. You know, it's like, do I feed my kids or do I go online so they can do their homework? I think a lot of families, especially single or lone families had to make very
6: harsh decisions during the pandemic. That's right. It's obstacles. It's an obstacle and it seems to suit one type or one class or one demographic. So it's not even just about economical access. It's There's fear and there's education and there's, there's this whole other layer. It's multi-layered, having the rights to access and having access and being able to access. And even if you're able, if you're physically able, are you mentally able to do that? You know, in government and all these spaces to think Because I feel like they are judging because of these obstacles. They're not worthy or they're not this. Well, hold on. Who said they're not? Your life can change in a matter of seconds. You can lose somebody, something can happen, you know, illness we have choices to take part and not take part, but the government and those that be are making choices on behalf of, it feels like on everybody to push towards this digital world where everybody has to be digital. Um, And that can't just fall upon everybody to do that there needs to be support out there um, from local authorities and f- for those local authorities for from the government everything is becoming more and more digital and we all know that this has been happening for a number of years now but it does seem and it's been fast forwarded especially with the pandemic there needs to be more support and whose responsibility is that because yeah we can say oh well we're all humans we're all adults we take responsibility for our actions in our own lives but when these choices and decisions are being made by larger platforms and companies and the government say no we want you all to be digital because we want to know where you are what you're doing who you're talking to how you're spending your money where you're getting your money from where is your money going and what you know the why's and the what's and the who's and the how's then there needs to be support out there because it doesn't matter whether you've got no children one child or 10 children that support needs to be there everyone has a right to eat everyone has a right to fresh clean water and everyone should have the right to be able to access online if they choose to and having one device or no device to have to share between between 10 people not on it's not it's not right and these things should be should be accessible for everybody
4: spoken word by chill jill a woman of a certain age has a message for the techies of this world do not label her Dear techie people, you say there's words for people like me, great, another label to carry. You say I'm a walking technobane, I make computers fucked, computer says no because I touched it. Well that just sounds really personal, like the bane of your life, like a poison ruining your total existence but my cards do get eaten up at atms i shout when paying automated bills when it inevitably takes more than one go but yeah me and computers have some issues in our relationship but we have come to a friendly truce you say well then you're a technophobe at the very least yes they scare me pending doom something will go wrong and i don't get the lingo the gibberish Why is everything in text speech? I'll DM you, ping you. Still not sure if LOL stands for laugh out loud or loads of love. And what about the trolls? They're just nasty, nasty, nasty. Who would invite them in their home spewing out their vile insults at you? You are fat. Go kill yourself. You are stupid and worthless. You are a loathsome lesbian. Constant online harassment kills. Look, I'm fragile enough and spent my whole life being labelled and marginalised. I don't need it from you techies or your invisible bullying cyber world. I just want to be in my own way. I want face-to-face and some help when I need to use the gizmos and gadgets at my pleasure. And when I accidentally delete work that's taken me hours... It's not helpful to say, oh, why didn't you save it on the cloud? What fucking cloud?
2: Thank you all so much for sharing yourself and your thoughts and your art with us so generously. It's really been such a privilege to be part of this wonderful workshop and process. So now the third part of the podcast turns the mic over to a group of academics who think about digital exclusion in the context of the recent turn to digital mental health care.
10: Hi, this is Beth and Natasha together with Derta, and we are the co-editors of a blog series called Tracking Digital Psy, Mental Health and Technology in an Age of Disruption, which explores the digital turn in mental health care. You can find the series on Somatosphere, a blog about science, medicine, and anthropology at www.somatosphere.net. This podcast episode has been asking the question, what is digital exclusion? And how does it relate to mental health? And we have posed this question to the academic contributors of our series we will hear from four anthropologists and clinicians who have thought about how digital exclusion shakes out in global contexts of mental health care.
8: So we're curious about thinking through digital exclusion never is just a given, a static condition. But we want to ask, how does inclusion and exclusion actually come about? Is it baked into service provision? Or how expert fields like mental health care define their problems? Could it even be embedded into the code of digital things? So we asked our contributors to respond to the following questions. Where is the problem of digital exclusion located? So where do we look for it? And what are the mechanisms of exclusion? So in other words, how and why does digital exclusion play out in practice? And we were surprised by the diversity of answers that we had.
10: Our first contributor reflects on digital mental health care in the US. Rebecca Lester is professor of anthropology at Washington University and a licensed practicing psychotherapist. Her piece was entitled Mediated Intimacies, Teletherapy and the Changing Face of American Mental Health Care. And Rebecca locates digital exclusion and the provision of digitally mediated therapy.
11: Teletherapy has increased access to mental health care for millions of Americans, but it is not an equal opportunity phenomenon. To engage in teletherapy, people need five key elements. A piece of technology, computer or phone, capable of connecting to the internet, internet service fast enough to sustain video calls, resources to pay for therapy, the ability to carve out an hour a week or more for a session, and a private place to speak from. These requirements necessitate a level of socioeconomic and interpersonal security that is simply not the reality for many people, often those most in need of mental health care. Aside from financial constraints, perhaps the most significant barrier is the ability to have privacy long enough to conduct a session. Work, childcare duties, busy households, and even micromanaging partners can make having a sustained private conversation difficult, if not impossible. For some, Maintaining privacy around the fact that one is involved in therapy at all can be an important safety issue. For teletherapy to realize its goals of increasing access to mental health care for underserved populations, these limitations must inform future developments and initiatives. So our second contributor brings into view the
8: structural inequalities in Ecuador, especially under COVID, and how that shaped the mental health helpline. Manuel Capella works at the Faculty of Psychological Sciences at the University of Guayaquil in Guayas province, Ecuador, where he currently teaches social psychology and conducts qualitative research. His essay was entitled Corpses in the Street, Psychologist on the Phone, Telepsychology, Neoliberalism and COVID-19 in Ecuador. And he locates digital exclusion in the politics and ideologies that shape the administration of mental health services.
9: Exclusion in Ecuador is painfully visible through poverty and economic inequality. This, of course, includes unequal access to the internet and unequal access to quality mental health services. Exclusion also takes place through ideological mechanisms. The ideology of mainstream psychiatry and psychology, which are mainly imported from global centers of power, tends to exclude other ways through which we can understand human distress. For example, it can exclude understandings rooted in a local cultural landscape that is quite diverse. It can also exclude socio-political approaches that focus on power relationships and social justice. In Ecuador, official discourses can turn social suffering into issues of individual psychopathology and self-regulation. They can also frame social media mainly as a source of fake news thus ignoring its potential for valuable collective action, and they can blame suffering and death mainly or exclusively to psychological and cultural flaws. When COVID-19 hit Guayaquil City, corpses lay in the streets while a neoliberal government responded with telepsychology. Admirable work by well-meaning volunteers notwithstanding, some of these ideological mechanisms seem to have been at work.
10: We also spoke with a computer scientist, and artist, who reflects on how inequality becomes part of the design of digital technology itself. Jonathan Zong is a visual artist and computer scientist based at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His piece was entitled Form, Content, Data, Bodies, which was an interview between Jonathan and myself about an experimental typeface he's designed called Biometric Sands. And Jonathan suggests we can find digital exclusion in the code and bits of the digital itself.
12: The digital begins with exclusion. Binary values 0 and 1 are mutually exclusive. From this starting point, digital technology is largely used to differentiate people into strict diagnostic categories. People are well or unwell, deserving or undeserving of care. Keystroke biometrics is one of many data-driven mechanisms used in digital psychiatry to sort people in this way. Biometrics are fraught because they exclude. They fail to capture social, ethical, and political complexities that are not reducible to numbers. They're also fraught because they include people in ways they would rather not be included. They capture people in large-scale networks of surveillance and hypervisibility. Our work focuses visibility toward the inner workings of biometric systems as we work within the uncomfortable gray space between care and control.
8: So our final two contributors bring anthropology to applied settings to think about the ethics of artificial intelligence and data. Livia Garofalo is a cultural and medical anthropologist and a researcher on the health and data team at Data and Society. Alexa Haggerty is an anthropologist and co-founder of Dovetail Labs and a researcher at the University of Cambridge Centre for the Future of Intelligence. Their piece was entitled Mapping Algorithmic Assumptions. And in doing this, Livia and Alexa locate the mechanisms of digital exclusion and the possibility of
10: inclusion in the design process. Digital exclusion is often understood to mean inequitable access to specific technologies. But true digital inclusion isn't just about access, It involves having a meaningful say in how technologies are designed, used, and assessed, the futures that they are creating. Communities must have a voice in decisions about the technologies that affect their lives.
2: When people from a narrow demographic segment, think Silicon Valley tech bros, design Psi technologies based on Eurocentric and superficial models of human minds and behaviors, these technologies inevitably exclude most ways of being in the world. True digital inclusion means turning our attention from conversations that are narrowly focused on access and bias to considerations of structure and power. This means the use of participatory community engagement and achieving true equity and diversity in the teams designing, building and studying these technologies.
8: So to return to our question of where we look for digital exclusion, well, we can find digital exclusion at work across scales and zip codes, from the global politics of crisis response in Ecuador to the spaces between zeros and ones of binary code. We find exclusion when mental health care moves online and social and economic circumstances make it difficult to find a private space to do therapy or a reliable source of internet to connect in the first place. So suffice to say that there is no one singular location of digital exclusion no standardized experience or straightforward way to define without considering context. And what about the mechanisms of digital exclusion? How and why does it play out in practice? Well, this I think is the harder question to answer, but maybe the most important one when it comes to thinking about how to disrupt these patterns of exclusion. So do the stories that we've heard in this episode give us clues as to how things could be done otherwise? What we take away is that it's important to understand all of the technical, bureaucratic and political mechanisms of exclusion. But in the end, it's all produced by people and communities. So it's important to let people with lived experience lead the process. So instead of asking what digital exclusion looks like them, perhaps the answer is to leave it up to the people most impacted to define digital inclusion how to design for multiplicity and nuance in a way that facilitates a sense of belonging in digital worlds.
2: Thank you so much, Natasha and Bess. I agree with you. What I think we learn from all of our contributors in this episode is that digital inclusion and exclusion have a moving and evolving and perhaps even a double edge. The ideals of participation, access and connection Are not only shaped by social inequalities but also inextricably linked with experiences of surveillance of unequally distributed agencies safety and respect in online spaces digital inclusion can be both care and control as jonathan pointed out it can both help and harm our mental well-being and often simultaneously as we've heard from our artists and it is this complexity of digital life worlds shaped by power societal norms and individual needs and abilities that we need to tune into as we set out to make digital worlds more habitable for everyone so let me now give the last word in our shared exploration of digital exclusion to amala joy who will read her poem which is entitled steeped to long continuum steadily eroding
0: sense of self surrounded The suffocating hum of certain intensity. Speeding down, slowing in singular silences. Singing and buzzing, stilled in denial. Set free or ensnared in putrid deceit through the ages. Singled out, sought from millions. Same continuing, yet differing. Steadily eroding sense of me. Steeped too long in need, want, lack of, etc. Supersounding dreams to heal a nation. Squashed? No, not yet. Delayed? Yes, that's tolerable. Situation too precarious for building back better, sprinkling the tingle of tragedy touring my spine, steadily submerging, erasing, spreading, tracking through, humming, up, down, vibrating out into my space, squatting I am the chair, slaughtered the floor I am. The desk space, devoid of tablet to soothe, heal, or score my wall, of smartphone in which to state, if known, the name of the medical emergency. Silenced, streaming ceased for now, in this continuum. again.